You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Could you expand on that for one minute before we conclude? Sure. Uh, uh, In that famous series of conversations, the answer is we have to disclose this ourselves. We're going to send John Dean to Camp David to write the report. I'm going to call for a new investigation. I'm not going to assert executive privilege. And then John Dean pulls the rug out from under the president and goes to the prosecutors. Now, if you listen to the tapes after that week, the, the president's conduct and Ehrlichman's conduct and Haldeman's conduct is, is uh, uh, questionable. But that's because John Dean didn't prepare the report that they were relying on to call for a new investigation. And that delay, that suddenly they're looking at a, a, an accusation of conspiracy to obstruct justice on a cover-up instead of proclaiming their innocence of not knowing anything about the break-in itself. And it dawns on them, Dean has not been acting as their lawyer. John Dean has been protecting himself. We, we say, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Let me, that's what John Dean did. He dug them in a hole so deep they couldn't get out, and then he leapt out and said, see what they did, see what they did. Uh, when we think of the media in this country, the problem is uh, that they have a sense of self-righteousness, uh, a double standard on issue after issue after issue. Uh, they can find everything wrong with somebody else, but they will not look inside and ever admit that they could be wrong themselves. And what was involved here in the Watergate thing was the unfairness of it. Oh, there was a legitimate thing to investigate, but they refused to balance it. Uh, They allowed their advocacy to get ahead of their reporting, which is their job to do. Uh, You know, President Eisenhower, in his farewell address, uh, wrote about and warned against the power of the uh, military-industrial complex. Uh, I didn't get a chance to make a farewell address, but uh, when I get old enough and decide to retire, and I'm not planning it at the moment, but when I get that old, uh, if I make a farewell address, I think I would warn against the media elitist complex. You know, the media is always talking about uh, the imperial presidency, the power of the imperial presidency. I think we ought to hear a little bit of discussion of the imperial media and its power. You see, presidential power is limited, limited by the courts, limited by the Congress. The media's power is unlimited. And some would say, but what about libel suits? Forget it. Uh, After the Supreme Court's decision in Sullivan versus New York Times a few years ago, a public figure cannot collect in a libel suit against newspaper or television unless he can prove malice. And there's no way uh, that that's going to be possible. Isn't the media so I would say that as far as the media is concerned, uh, all we can hope from them, if they're going to be responsible, is self-analysis, uh, self-criticism. And, and some of them are trying with their ombudsman and the rest. The other thing is competition. But what we see in terms of newspapers across the country is more and more places where there's only one paper. Take Washington, D.C. Since the star uh, left the scene, The Washington Post is the only major newspaper being printed in the most important capital in the world. I wouldn't like to leave the fate of this country to the editors of the Washington Post. (laughs) 
you think that the country would be better off if the cover-up had succeeded and Watergate had never surfaced or at least had never gone as far as it did, led to your resignation? Ray Price, uh, one of my biographers and my longtime speechwriter, and a very honorable man (laughs) who uh, would feel that any kind of a cover-up is wrong, morally, etc., believes that that's the case. Uh, I am not able really to be the best judge of that. Uh, Certainly, uh, I think that under the circumstances, from a personal standpoint, uh, it would have been best that Watergate not be expanded uh, to the point that it was. Uh, In other words, uh, to have a misdemeanor become the crime of the century didn't make any sense. Uh, And to have uh, uh, people today talk about not the crime of Watergate, but the crimes of Watergate. Uh, simply didn't make sense. It was that, of course, that brought us down. Where do you start? Uh, probably uh, out in San Clemente when uh, I remember I, he was giving a speech up in, in Los Angeles on the economy, which I had written, and uh, I'd gone over it with him, and he'd give it to me, back to me with some things in a little folder, and I found in the folder a couple of mem- notes he'd made there about members of the Judiciary Committee, their names. It was cryptic to me, but these are key ones. And I think these were, I think he had just learned that day that these were ones he was going to lose, and they probably meant that he would be losing uh, the presidency. Um, they uh, gave them back to him with a note just saying this, and it was later on that I found out, found out what the significance of them was. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. This is Randall Wallace, and this is the final week um, before President Nixon resigns. We're going to take you right up to the moment um, of his resignation. And I wanted to uh, just kind of introduce this because I'm not going to talk a whole lot in this show. Um, there's a lot of sources here that I kind of wanted to go over. You're going to get to hear um, from obviously known unknowns with uh, Hugh Hewitt and Jeff Shepard, uh, episode eight, which we open with. But you'll hear Jeff Shepard uh, talking in it. Um, Frank Gannon's interview with President Nixon, which is fascinating, which will give you a real insight into uh, President Nixon and uh, his his state of mind and what was going on with him and his family as, as we get to this final point. Uh, also, his aide, Ray Price, was with him from the beginning all the way to the end and wrote uh, a lot of the resignation speech will... Um, will be his oral history is going to be used he's dispelled some inaccuracies and that's what they are that bob woodward and carl bernstein wrote about in the final days Um, there's also an interview with gerald ford with bob costas um, portions of the bbc's uh, watergate the downfall of a president and pbs's summer of judgment um, documentaries we've been using some of those all along and then finally i want to just say this so that you know um Alexander Haig's oral history, and we've discussed this before, was sealed because of national security issues. I read his part from the transcript. Uh, can't say that I'm a professional actor, but uh, we, 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 we do read it, and so you'll get a feel for some of his, because his, his oral history is just fabulous of what's going on. Now, he will bounce back and forth because he has done other interviews that I also used. But when you hear me come on there, a lot of times it'll sound real official. I'll say Alexander Haig, and then whoever's interviewing him, I'll call them by name and then read their portions. Um, so if that stands out to you, uh, that is um, what that is. But I think you're going to get a real feel for the emotional trauma of that last week of Richard Nixon in the White House.
the smoking gun tape, Alexander Haig. Listen, I had two lawyers listen to it, including St. Clair and Bizarre, and they said this is very damaging, but it's not definitive because he Nixon had a strange way of doing things. He always would take the devil's advocate position. I have never known him not to. You know, and then he would say, or don't you agree? And if you agreed, he knew you were a phony. If you didn't agree, he said, this fellow's worth listening to. And then he would ask some serious questions. And that's the way these tapes read if you read them all the time. Don't you agree? Oh, of course he wouldn't do that. That was his style. He never really displayed his own personality in any tape I have ever read. And I haven't read many of them, incidentally. But it was never his personality. It was the the role he was playing at the moment and the fellow who was who was crossing him. If it was Dean, huh? And incidentally, Dean. Wow. I mentioned the smoking gun tape because the president understood that it was a problem. Alexander Haig. Oh, anybody understood it was a problem. But it was a defensible one if you had a good, straight, honest, objective hearing. The president returns to Washington, D.C. Is there ever in a moment where St. Clair says, we shall fight on? We will fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the fields. We, we Well, yes, give up. there is. Yes, there is. He's out on the West Coast. He hasn't heard the tape. He tells the president, we got no problems at all. I can handle it. So Nixon says, send St. Clair out on the lawn in the, the, uh, the afternoon. There's an eight-hour gap between that decision and the announcement we're going to comply. And that's when the fight occurs. And Bazart loses the fight. And we announce we're going we're going to adhere to the Supreme Court decision. And it's done because St. Clair assures Nixon nothing's going to happen. St. Clair comes back. Bazart grabs him by the lapels and shoves his nose down into that tape. And then in Nixon's memoirs, he says, and St. Clair's attitude changed completely. Excuse me. He'd been breezily confident that the tape wouldn't cause us a problem. And now he was adamant that we had to release the tape. And everything changed. The lawyers were no longer seeking to protect the president. They sold him out. Well, I should point out that before it was released, a statement had been made, which Ray Price, who had started work on the resignation speech on Thursday, and then I turned him off to do this work. Uh, he had worked on a statement on this, and Jim St. Clair and the other lawyers had been up to get a statement out accompanying the tape. They were seeking to have the president testify and assure that he'd never let him hear that tape before. When you look at his statement of release on August 5th, the lawyers wrote it to cover themselves. And we'll, I don't know how much time we have, but we're going to end, the lawyers were mistaken. I mean, you want to think about what went wrong. Now, it was tough circumstances. The president was on the ropes anyway. I will say that he was improperly on the ropes, that he really didn't do what he was accused of doing. But it was the lawyers in the position of Fred Bizarre, his stoutest defender, who misinterpreted the smoking gun tape and pulled the rug out from the president. Well, Al Haig brought that to me the last day at Camp David to look at it. Uh, when I saw the statement, I was really almost horrified because it made a very good case for the lawyers, which it should, saying they were not informed of this uh, prior to the time they made their presentation to the committee. Uh, but it made a very poor case for me, their client, by not emphasizing, as I thought, enough what I had done two weeks later. Uh, I mentioned this to Al Haig, and I'd written out a few words to correct it. And for the first time, he, he got a little abrupt with me, and I understand why. He said, nope, 
He said, we can't do a thing more with it. If we don't take it just the way they fixed it, they're going to jump ship. I said, well, the hell with it. Uh, let them write anything they want. I made my decision anyway. Had they not done so, had they made an explanation, and we'll conclude with this, that was sufficiently persuasive of the public that the June 21st tape was not a smoking gun and was irrelevant to the Watergate break-in. Would, in your opinion, the president have survived articles of impeachment limited to his March conversations and conduct? If we had known of the roadmap, uh, the fight was going to be over what the president did after he learned from John Dean on March 21st of the cover-up, and I think we can make a case that the president did the right thing. So when we got back to Washington, he knew the decision was made, as he'd noted, known it before. I was summoned to a meeting at Al Haig's office, Al being the chief of staff then. Uh, got over there, and uh, several department heads and so forth had been assembled. There was a chart thing with covered over for displays of charts, and we waited. Haig came in a little bit later, apologized for being late and told uh, the assembled people that we're gearing up for the uh, the final fight in the battle. He'd all, the impeachment had already been voted, and assignments preparing for the uh, the fight in the house, in, in the house, on the House floor and in the Senate, and uh, assigning people roles and all that sort of thing. And then we broke up, and I was lingering outside. Then I was called back in, and uh, Higgs said all that had been show that uh, he wants a speech for Monday for Monday evening, announcing his resignation. Uh, that uh, we had lost, by then we had lost the battle in the Supreme Court to, for the privacy of the tapes. Uh, he had lost uh, his support in the Judiciary Committee. Uh, they'd already been voting articles of impeachment, and uh, he decided that uh, it was not going to be a winnable fight, and he was going to, going to resign. Uh, and, uh, okay, so I started, I wasn't, I wasn't sure, but I started, started working on it. Uh, you write in your autobiography of August 1st, 1974, when Alexander Haig calls you into uh, his office and he has heard the damning June 23rd tape and he knows it's all over. Well, Al Haig came over to my office uh, in the old uh, executive building and uh, told me that the smoking gun uh, tape was going to be released the following week. I think Al came into my office on a Friday. He said uh, the damage was severe. Good evening. President Nixon stunned the country today by admitting that he held back evidence from the House Judiciary Committee, keeping it a secret from his lawyers and not disclosing it in public statements. The news has caused a storm in Washington, and some of Mr. Nixon's most loyal supporters are calling for his resignation. Above all was the Wiggins of California, who had fought so vigorously and courageously for the president. And uh, I told the president I felt it was imperative that we tell him what was in this tape so that he not commit political suicide. It was proof. It came right from the president's mouth. It linked him personally. And uh, it linked him to conduct which, in fairness, could be characterized as a crime, namely an obstruction of justice, a felony under the United States Code. And I shall support <clears throat> those portions of Article One of the Bill of Impeachment adopted by the Judiciary Committee, which are sustained by the evidence. I have urged the President that he make a reappraisal of his position and that he consider 
uh, his resignation from office. If I were in his shoes, which I'm not, I would resign. Would you be relieved if he did? Oh, I think the country would be relieved if he did. It was highly likely that uh, either there would be an impeachment on the one hand or President Nixon would retire, resign on the other. He didn't know what would be the answer. Uh, in that discussion, he presented uh, five or six options that might happen, might happen. He didn't ask me to comment on any one of them. He was just outlining what the possibilities might be when the tape was actually released to the public. Vice President asked me about the pardon authority of the president. After that meeting, I met with Bob Hartman. Bob was always a person who was skeptical and cynical. I said you should have grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and the seat of the pants and kicked his ass out of this office. And then you should have held a press conference and told the world why you did it. Late that night, I got a call from the vice president telling me that our discussion on those, quote, options was a non-discussion. There was to be nothing done and that he was to have no position on it. Well, I, I'm not dumb. I knew what had happened. Uh, he had shared that information with Hartman. Uh, the next day, I was called back over again, and uh, this was the first time. What prompted this with, was uh, uh, having to turn over the, uh, the June 23rd tape, which was the one in which, uh, after an, over an hour and a half or so tape, six minutes in, during a six-minute period, asking the CIA to head off the FBI from, uh, from one, one angle. And uh, we could have survived easily earlier on, but at this point we couldn't. And uh, it wasn't until that Friday meeting back in Al's office that I actually saw the transcript. I thought maybe that they'd been over worrying about it. But I saw it was devastating. It was going to be devastating, considering how weak we were. I think we could have handled it earlier, but then I didn't think we could. So I started work that night uh, on a speech for Monday. Uh, then Saturday we convened again. By then he had changed his mind. He still wanted a speech for uh, Monday, but now he wanted one uh, saying that he was going to fight on and pledging to answer questions under oath in the Senate, which I thought was a bad mistake. I didn't see any way we could win it. Better to end it quickly and cleanly. Uh, but we had been asked to come up to Camp David on Sunday, and uh, he was up there. And uh, so I, uh, uh, got to work on uh, preparing two drafts. One, the one that he wanted to, to fight on, but also taking with me preparing a another resignation draft, hoping that the way I'd done the resignation draft might tip him into what I felt was really a necessary move at this point, not because it was justified, but simply because the battle was lost and better to end it quickly. We decided that night to. Uh go out for one last ride on the Sequoia. That also was a rather eerie ride, I may say. Uh, we talked about everything but uh, what Tricia has called, quote, the subject, end quote. Uh, we talked about a movies that uh, Julie had seen with David. I don't even remember what it was. Uh, we talked about how Rose was, uh, who she was with us uh, during these last days, uh, how she was handling some impertinent inquiries from the press in her usual very effective way. Uh, and so uh, the evening ended rather pleasantly, and I went down below uh, 
to stretch out because I'd had a pretty hard weekend, uh, I thought, uh, thinking about all these things. Uh, Rose took the call from Al Haig with regard to the reaction to the tape, and she came into the uh, uh, bedroom down below where I was stretched out, and she read from her shorthand notes. It's about as we expected. Uh, I kind of winced as some of the names were read off of those that had left now, uh, left my support. I understood it, uh, but they. I sort of I felt, I look back to the times I've campaigned for them and worked for them and supported them and written them and kind of tough, uh, although I did understand it. Didn't hold it against them. And, uh, but uh, then she read off that the cabinet, however, was standing firm for the most part. And then she left the room. And so I just uh, turned off the light and closed my eyes. At the cabinet meeting the next morning, you told the assembled cabinet uh, on the Tuesday morning that you weren't going to resign. Why did you do that? If Had you changed your mind? No, I told them quite deliberately. I knew the cabinet well. Uh, I knew from what I had heard from uh, Al Haig and others that uh, some of them felt that uh, they would like an opportunity to present their views and, in effect, to lobby me to make a decision in that way. Uh, I respected the cabinet, but I wasn't about to allow them uh, to uh, get me to resign. It had to be my own decision, taken in my own way at the right time. That was one reason. I didn't want to give them that opportunity. The second reason was even more important, however. I could not afford a leak. There couldn't be a period of even 48 hours, because the resignation couldn't take place, I knew, in at least a couple of days, uh, in which it was known that I was going to resign. Uh, and I knew that as far as the cabinet was concerned, as good as they were, that there'd be a leak out of there in that big a meeting. Uh, I know that many of them probably didn't appreciate the fact that I didn't tell them, just as many of them didn't appreciate it when I didn't tell them I was going to China. Uh, but on the other hand, there are times when you have to keep your counsel, and I felt that this was one of those times. I regretted it because I would like to have told them, but I didn't think it was the proper thing to do. Right after the cabinet meeting, I asked Henry to come in, and I told him, of course, because we had to inform foreign governments and all that sort of thing. He said, well, uh, he, he supported the decision. He regretted it, but uh, we, he simply, it just wasn't, uh, it was asking too much to ask me to be dishonored, as he put it, by having to go to trial for six months before the Senate. And, uh, but I also, uh, Pat Buchanan had been useful in some of this, and I had met with him. I thought he would be useful to have up there and so when I was asked if I wanted to bring anybody up to Camp David on Sunday I suggested that Pat also be added be added to the list and he was um, we went up I was carrying both drafts uh, by but by the time we got up there uh, himself had decided he was back on the resignation track and uh, uh, we so we worked over the we went uh, continued working on that uh, a whole whole group of us gathered up there trying to work out some, trying to find answers to some of the questions and so forth. Uh, and, uh, but uh, I still, uh, what the president finally came around to on Sunday, which I thought made sense, was that um, uh, we would put the, we would put the transcripts out. He was still expected to be resigning, but we would put the transcripts out, uh, but with a statement explaining them from our point of view and to see if the reaction were what we expected it to be. I thought that was a good idea because maybe we were just overreacting. 
and a lot was at stake in resigning the presidency and better to be sure we're doing the right thing. We did, uh, we worked on that statement up in Cap David, a whole bunch of us up there, and with a lot of phone calls back and forth to the White House trying to clarify things, put the statement out on Monday. Uh, the reaction was what we expected. And so on Tuesday, I got a call from Al. We were back on the resignation track for a speech on Thursday night. And uh, from then on, I was working on that uh, in total secrecy. This was one of the tightest kept secrets that had ever been in the White House, that he was resigning, even though people, a lot of people assumed that he was. Uh, and uh, we went back and forth on this. I was working with him, sending, mem sending drafts back and forth. Uh, he... Um, was going on the air at 9 o'clock Wednesday, 9 o'clock Thursday. Had you uh, told Vice President Ford or informed him that the decision was imminent and that he might become president on very short notice? Yes, that, that, he was kept informed throughout, not by me, but by Haig. Uh, and then uh, after this particular day, I, of course, uh, by telephone, uh, discussed the matter with him. You wrote of your last meeting with President Nixon, where he told you, last meeting while he was president, uh, where he told you of his intentions. What sort of emotional state was he in? I must say I thought he handled himself very uh, firmly, very straightforwardly. Uh, he analyzed for me why he was taking this very, very serious action and expressed to me certain recommendations, uh, one of which he hoped that I would keep uh, Secretary of State Kissinger on, which, which was very, very easy for me to do because uh, I had such high regard for him. He made some other observations and recommendations about uh, how to handle the Congress. Uh, of course, with my background in the Congress, I thought I could handle that uh, as well, if not better than he. But anyhow, it was a good exchange under very, very difficult circumstances. Was there gallows humor? I wouldn't say that, Bob, no. Uh, President Nixon was a strong, uh, straightforward person in all his dealings as far as I'm personally concerned. Was it appropriate or possible for you to express at any time your disappointment? You had been a strong Nixon supporter supported him as a congressman in 52 when he was vice president and the slush fund uh, bit came up, or I guess he was a candidate for vice president. There was talk of throwing him off uh, the Eisenhower ticket in 56. You strongly supported him. There was talk that he might have selected you as vice president in both 60 and 68. He didn't. All the while, you stood by him. You were very different sorts of personalities. I guess people would wonder if there ever came a moment where you fixed him in your gaze and you just said, Dick, why? How? Well, it was, of course, very, very disappointing when all of the facts came out in the Watergate investigation. It was not only disappointing, but I must say very surprising because uh, the Nixons and the Fords had had a long, long-standing personal relationship going back to 1949 when I first took the oath of office two years after uh, Congressman Nixon had taken his oath of office. We belonged to a social organization called Chowder and Marching. 
Uh, I had campaigned for him uh, while he was in the Senate, and he had come to Grand Rapids to campaign on my behalf. We had a long and, uh, I would say, very good personal relationship. So uh, that added to my respect for him as a person in foreign policy that was as good, if not the best, certainly in this century, of those occupying the White House. A mistake was made. Instead of being forthright about the mistake, uh, the whole problem got entangled in politics. And the net result was uh, a very disappointing uh, final chapter. Again, referring to your book, you wrote that at least at times, maybe the night he resigned, the next day when he addressed the staff before heading out to the helicopter, you thought he was out of touch with reality. By that time, Bob, I think he was. He had been besieged from all sides, the Congress, the press, the public. There's no question that when you're under that kind of pressure, uh, you do sort of retreat into the catacombs of the White House, if that's the way to say it. And um, I suspect that probably had an impact on some of the decisions. Are you uh, aware that uh, after this cabinet meeting, uh, Secretary of Defense Schlesinger went back to the Pentagon and met with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and then uh, issued an order that no uh, alert or uh, alert of American forces could be declared without his counter-signature, uh, and he's since said it was because, or it's since been said that he said, was because he feared your stability and that you would either use a foreign crisis to uh, maintain yourself in office or that you would use domestic troops in order to main retain yourself in office, in, in effect, a coup. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, Why did he think that, though? I don't know. I don't know. I have great respect for him. I appointed him to several very important positions, as everybody knows. Uh, but I can't understand why he would do that, because uh, that just isn't the way I'd operate. There, there was nothing in my mind whatever like that. I had made the decision, actually, to resign on the 23rd of August. It was just a question of, frankly, programming it the right way. Does it frighten you that for three days, although you didn't know it, if for some reason you had had to declare an alert, uh, it wouldn't have happened because of the intervention of this order? Oh, I think it would have happened. Weakened as I was then, uh, let me say, uh, I had handled Schlesinger before when uh, he didn't want to send the planes to Israel. Uh, and I said, look, you send them. Send everything that flies, damn it. And he did. And in this case, I would have shaken him up pretty damn good. I'm, I'm glad it wasn't necessary. Summer of 1974, Nixon's fitness for office. Paul Musgrave. By the summer of 1974, how in touch was President Nixon with the day-to-day -day working of the government? Was he still carrying on as he always had, or was more of it being picked up by the staff in the cabinet? Alexander Haig, you mean after he, Paul Musgrave, before before he was June, July of 1974. Alexander Haig, the last 18 months, Paul Musgrave, uh-huh. Alexander Haig, I won't pretend that he wasn't preoccupied. He couldn't. I mean, never a day went by there wasn't a brand new assault of some kind that had to be answered and addressed in a timely fashion. In my own case, I never did anything that didn't have the approval of the president. I was raised in the old school. I wasn't elected to anything. 
you know, I detest White House staffers who assume authorities that they are not qualified to assume, and it's counterproductive to our system and to the democratic process, which confirms or elects, and I never did it. Timothy Deftali. Well, what we're talking about will be most useful for people a long time from now, but there's a very poignant moment in your memoirs, and you talk in the, mentioned in the summer of 1974, you were very concerned for President Nixon's health. Alexander Haig. Yeah, you bet I was. Timothy Timothy Naftali. And if I, for the record, you had written about it, but for the record, if you would, you might tell the story of what you told the doctors. Alexander Haig, what I told Timothy Naftali, told the doctors you were concerned about the prescription drugs that he had. Alexander Haig. Oh, yeah. But in the first place, he had phlebitis, and that trip to Egypt was really... And, of course, we went beyond there, too. But it was up like this. And the doctors came in and said, you have got to go home. You have got to get treatment for this thing because these things have a way of flaking off and going up through the system, and you could get a stroke and die. And I'm not so sure. I didn't know whether he had a death wish or not. You know, he was not taking care of himself, and he stood up in the damn train all the way across Cairo to Alexandria. And I just was very upset about it. He and Henry were having a row. Henry was Henry with the wiretaps or whatever the hell it was, which the president had nothing to do with other than take the advice of J. Edgar Hoover and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Earl Wheeler. But anyhow, that got me started worrying. And then one night I was sitting with the president. We were commiserating, going over the things that he didn't look and that he didn't look well. And he got up and he said, Al, he said you know, and he walked over to my desk. He was in my office is, is where he was. And he, he said, in the army, you open a door and you put a pistol in and you close the door and you leave and the fellow takes care of it himself. He said, I'm beginning to think maybe you better put a pistol in my drawer. And I didn't know what to say. It was a serious time. We weren't joking or kidding or anything else. He hadn't had a scotch or anything. So I told the daughters, be careful what you what they gave him. This was in the last week of his presidency. And I said, you really have to be careful what you give him. You have no idea what kind of state of mind he would be in in this position. I mean, the only thing he ever wanted was to be president of the United States. And he knew he was a good one. He knew it. Of course he did. He knew more than any president I knew. He knew everybody he dealt with. They respected him. So, but... Did I do that? Now, I'd add a little vignette to that because I found out that the last week, Woodward and Bernstein were going through my garbage personally. And my son said to me, he said, you know those guys? I caught them out there going through your garbage pail. I said, who who were they? He said, Woodward and Bernstein. So two nights after Nixon had resigned and he was in California, I got home and there are the two of them sitting on my doorstep and they said, we're writing another book. We need some information. I said, oh, come on. I'll give you a cup of coffee, but that's it. I'm going to bed. I'm not giving you anything. And so we sat down. My wife made them coffee. They each had a cup of coffee, and they said, you told the doctors not to give the president pills. And I said, that's not true. I told them to be careful what pills they gave him because he is in a state of trauma, whether to resign or not to resign. His family was pushing him not to. And that's the way it was. Of course, they were good family. 
I would have done the same. But the, the economy was in deep, deep trouble, beginning to get extra bad. We had oil problems, as you know. And I think he began to realize that he couldn't govern because whatever was coming out was being vetoed or, you know, they wouldn't get him passed or he was being blackmailed on it. So he decided on his own to do it, to resign. And he didn't want to put the country through what would have been a year and a half or two-year horror with no governance and the Soviets bleeding internally from what had just happened to them in the Yom Kippur War, Sadat defecting from their sphere of influence. So I, I told them, I said, you have it wrong, I said. I just put took a prudent step and told the doctors to be careful what medication they made available to the president until we got through this bad point. Then they went around and told everybody I gave them the whole book. Well, of course I knew I didn't because I never talked to them off the record. This guy, you know, somebody asked me about today, what do I think about Woodward? I'm in NATO three months later, and I get a call from Woodward. He said, I bought my tickets. I'm coming over. I want to talk to you. We're, we're finishing up our book called The Final Days. I said, I told you I'm not going to talk to you. He said, oh, no, you have to. He said, I've already bought the tickets, and I've made the expense. I said, look, I'll tell you, Bob, if you come over, I'll, I'll re receive you and give you a cup of coffee, but I'm not going to talk to you about anything that happened while I served the president. So in he comes. Well, in the meantime, I got my executive who was a brigadier general, a guy named John Barter. He, he got murdered in Northern Virginia. His girlfriend's son st stuck a knife in him. Wonderful guy. Rhodes Scholar and everything. First captain of the Corps of Cadets. But anyhow, he, he sat there with a yellow tablet, and in came Woodward. And he sat down, and I gave him a cup of coffee, and he said, You know, we're writing this book, Al. And strangely enough, we both decided you can come out of it a hero or a bum, and the choice is up to you. If you give me some good juicy bets on Nixon, you're going to come out a hero. And I said, you see that door, Bob? I said, you better get to that door before I get to you. And he got up and literally ran out of, the, of my office because I, I would have, whatever it took, he was a lot younger than I am, but I tell you, I would have knocked his block in, and he ran out of my office. Now that's what I think about Woodward. And did I write it in, in my book? I didn't because my, the, the fellow who helped me collaborate, I wrote the book when, when, you, when you really got down to it. You don't ever get a collaborator because nobody says it the way you want, want to say it. And he's a wonderful guy, he said. Don't do this, he said. He'll just be after you the rest of your life, he said. I know he's a vindictive son of a bitch. And I didn't do it. But I feel like doing it every day of the week because I know what a liar he is. When did you uh, inform uh, General Haig that you had actually reached this well, that after, the, the afternoon after the cabinet meeting, I had Haig and Ziegler come over and I said, well, uh, the things are moving very fast now. Uh, I think that we should do it on Thursday. Uh, and I then proceeded to give... Uh, uh, several suggestions with regard to the content of the uh, resignation speech, passed them on to Ray Price. Things were moving very fast. This was on the Tuesday afternoon. This was the Tuesday afternoon. And uh, But I also, uh, Pat Buchanan had been useful in some of this, and I had met with him. I thought he would be useful to have up there. And so when I was asked if I wanted to bring anybody up to Camp David on Sunday, I suggested that Pat also be added, be added to the list. And he was. Um... We went up. I was carrying both drafts. 
by but by the time we got up there, uh, himself had decided he was back on the resignation track, and uh, uh, we so we worked over the we went uh, continued working on that. Uh, a whole whole group of us gathered up there, trying to work out some trying to find answers to some of the questions and so forth, uh, and. Uh, but uh, still, uh, what the president finally came around to on Sunday, which I thought made sense, was that um, uh, we would put the we would put the transcripts out. He was still expected to be resigning, but we would put the transcripts out, uh, but with a statement explaining them from our point of view, and to see if the reaction were what we expected it to be. I thought that was a good idea because maybe we were just overreacting. And a lot was at stake in resigning the presidency, and better to be sure we're doing the right thing. We did. Uh, we worked on that statement up in Cap David, a whole bunch of us up there, and with a lot of phone calls back and forth to the White House trying to clarify things, put the statement out on Monday. Uh, the reaction was what we expected. And so on Tuesday, I got a call from Al. We were back on the resignation track for a speech on Thursday night. And uh, from then on, I was working on that. Uh, in total secrecy. This was one of the tightest kept secrets that had ever been in the White House, that he was resigning, even though people, a lot of people assumed that he was. Uh, and uh, we went back and forth on this. I was working with him, sending, mem sending drafts back and forth. Uh, he uh, was going on the air at 9 o'clock Wednesday, 9 o'clock Thursday. Uh, on Wednesday, we were meeting in his old executive office building office, going over, I think, probably about the third draft of the speech. And uh, he had written in the draft something about, I met with the leaders of the House and Senate, and they've advised me that I do not have the support to continue. Uh, he explained to me that uh, he was going to be meeting at 5 o'clock. He had the Republican leaders of the House and Senate and Barry Goldwater coming in and uh, to meet with him at 5, and that uh, he thought it was important to, to uh, meet with them so they could deliver the message to him personally so that it would be more like an impeachment and therefore less of a damaging precedent for the future, for future presidents. Tell us about August 5th, 1974, when you were selected to be among a very few number of people that had to go over the White House and tell Richard Nixon he would never survive a, an impeachment trial in the Senate. The day before... Gerald Ford came to our annual, I mean, our weekly Republican luncheon. And that's when he disclosed to us the fact that he, Nixon had lied again. That was on a Tuesday. Well, I stood up and I asked for the floor and I said, I have taken all I can take. I am publicly going to oppose this man. Well, my fellow Republicans as they do, they came, they came to me and said, we want you to go to the White House and talk with Nixon. Uh, it seems to me every time there's a problem around here, they call on old Goldie to get somebody out of it. So I called the White House and said, I'd like to come up and talk with the president and Dean Birch uh, of Tucson uh, told me, he said, well, let's not be in a hurry. Can we have lunch tomorrow? So I went out to Dean's house and had lunch with he and Alexander Haig. 
And there they told me the whole story, just where the things sat and the fact that the president was sitting on the tip of a pin or a needle and he could go either way, so we didn't want to upset him and have him drag this thing out into a long uh, congressional process. They asked me if I could visit that afternoon with Nixon at the White House. Now, I didn't know at that time they were going to bring John Rhodes or Scott. When I got to the White House, there they were. We went in, sat down, and he sat there. You'd think he just finished a hole in one. He talked with each one of us, talked with me about uh, campaigning and how much we'd campaign together and so forth. And then he finally said, uh, well, what do my chances look like on the Hill? Well, I said, Mr. President, if you have 12 or 13 votes in the Senate, that's more than I think you have. I think you've had it. John Rhodes told him essentially the same thing, and Hugh Scott agreed. That's about as far as it went. We, were, we had agreed that we would not say to him, you have to resign. Although, had it been me alone, I would have told him. We left the office, went outside, and the press were all out there. And we had to be very careful so that we wouldn't infer that he had made up his mind. Congressman Rhodes and Senator Scott and I have just concluded a visit with the president. He invited us down this afternoon to uh, disclose to him uh, what we feel the actual conditions in the House and the Senate are relative to uh, his situation. We uh, had a good thorough discussion, and I think I speak for my two colleagues when I say that we were extremely impressed with the uppermost thought in his mind which is that whatever decision he makes, it will be in the best interest of our country. There has been no decision made. We made no suggestions. We were merely there to offer what we see as a condition on both floors. Uh, Congressman John? Well, actually, I have nothing to add except to say that the president did seem to be in good spirits and good health and uh, as four old friends we talked over a situation which of course is very painful for all of us we have told him that the situation is very gloomy on capitol hill and uh, that it is a very distressing situation and we gave him further evaluations which i think ought to remain uh, uh, between ourselves and I came back down to the Senate and reported to the Senate leadership, the Republican leadership, what had transpired, and that I personally felt that he was going to quit. Uh, later on, I'm just at the PS, uh, a lot of stories of, uh, a lot of work in recent years going out to how they had come, they had come bravely come in and bearded the lion in his den and, and talked him into resigning and so forth. Uh, this was not true. He was already on the track. He was already working on it. Uh, and he was just trying to help uh, make a better president for the future. And uh, 
I said to uh, uh, General Haig that uh, uh, that I would uh, resign, but uh, it would be with dignity and with no rancor. And uh, he said, you will be as worthy, your exit, he said, will be as worthy as your opponents are unworthy. Uh, and then I thought a minute and I said, well, Al, I really screwed it up, didn't I? He didn't have to answer. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. waits to hear from President Nixon. At 9 o'clock Washington time tonight, Mr. Nixon will deliver a live televised address from the Oval Office of the White House. All indications are that he will announce his resignation as the 37th President of the United States. Howard? Tonight, the President will tell the American people what he alone can tell them, why, if it is so, his persistent resolve never to resign his office has now been changed. In Washington today, the mood of expectation that the President would step down changed radically to one of almost certainty. One White House aide even confirmed it, but refused to let his name be used. On Capitol Hill, Democratic House Whip Thomas O'Neill said that Gerald Ford will be sworn in as President tomorrow afternoon. Still, the final word will come from Mr. Nixon himself in his broadcast tonight, perhaps his last from the White House. That's where today's drama began. ABC White House correspondent Tom Jarrell has details. As the president arrived at his office today, he began implementing the steps which will lead to his departure. Vice President Ford was summoned for an hour, ten-minute discussion on how to handle an orderly transition. The starch was gone from new Secretary Ronald Ziegler as he gave what may be his last official announcement. Tonight at 9 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time, the President of the United States will address the nation on radio and television from his Oval Office. Ziegler turned quickly and left, neither taking questions nor waiting for the traditional thank you to formally end the news conference. Reporters who had observed him and engaged in verbal combat over the years felt Ziegler's appearance confirmed the resignation reports. Aides privately said yes, they were true, but would not give details. The official announcement is being left for the president. 
The pressure built quickly and became unbearable when both Republicans in Congress and some senior White House staff members demanded he quit. The final decision came after Mr. Nixon dined with his family last night, following a lengthy discussion with Secretary of State Kissinger. First thing today, ABC's Ted Koppel found the secretary in a somber mood, as Kissinger recalled the previous evening. What were you doing there so long last night? Uh, the president called me and asked me to come by, and uh, so I spent some hours with him. Were you discussing foreign policy, or were you discussing resignation? We were discussing the whole situation. And we've gone through uh, many difficult periods together, and he wanted to exchange some views. Now, one word, Mr. Secretary, has been used to describe the president's mood by at least <clears throat> two different people who have seen him over the past few days, and that is serene. How would you describe it? I would call it philosophical and, and serene and reflective. What was uh, the uh, family dinner like that night, Tuesday night? Uh, very quiet. Uh, we didn't talk that much about uh, the situation. Let me say uh, Mrs. Nixon was very perceptive, however. Uh, I learned later that after our night on the Sequoia, uh, that uh, even though they hadn't been officially told the decision was final, she had started to sort the clothes and start the packing. Uh, incidentally, for three days, uh, from Monday night until we left on Friday morning, she didn't sleep at all, uh, packing five and a half years of clothes and other mementos uh, preparatory to leaving. It, it, with us, sometimes, as it is between people that are very close, uh, you don't have to say it publicly or even privately. Things unspoken, say it even more strongly. That uh, night, after you had been working in the Lincoln sitting room, uh, you got back to your room, and uh, as you write in your memoirs, there was a note on your pillow. Well, as a matter of fact, even more interesting, I did another amusing point. Monday night, after we got back from the ride on uh, the Sequoia, I just couldn't sleep, and uh, I, uh, understandably, I guess, and so I went down to the Lincoln sitting room about 2 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I lit a fire. It was the middle of the summer, but the air conditioning was on. I always lit fires in the middle of August. It didn't matter. And uh, I sat back, uh, lights off, enjoying the fire, and two men burst into the room wearing overalls and so forth. They said, the fire alarm has gone off. Apparently, I had uh, not opened the ventilator so the smoke was out. And so they fixed it and fumbled around and so forth and so on, and they started to leave the room. And the younger one of the two sort of turned rather deferentially, said, Mr. President, we just want you to know we're praying for you. Then, uh, after the Tuesday night uh, dinner, which was family dinner, and, and uh, Mrs. Nixon made it very pleasant for us, and had the dogs come in and do their usual begging at the White House table and so forth, and we joked about that. But uh, she, too, like me, she had a lot of practice going through crises, knew how to handle it. And then I worked again in the Lincoln sitting room, working on my resignation speech then, until very late. We continued on through Wednesday, uh, working, going back and forth, and trying to refine it, and... Um, then uh, Wednesday night, uh, 
I got a call. We've, we've been sending things back and forth um, and talking on the phone and so forth. And Wednesday, stop. Then Wednesday night were nine. I had nine phone calls from beginning at eight, the first at 8.30, the last at 5.07 a.m. Uh, this was a night when some of the accounts, I think Woodward Bernstein's included, had him up in his Lincoln sitting room on his knees, chewing on the rug and talking to pictures and so forth. Uh, through a lot of this, he was actually t talking to me as we worked out the speech. Uh, it's also when he met with Henry Kissinger and they did kneel down and pray together and things like that. But chewing on the rug and talking to pictures, no. Uh, he was working. And uh, it was in these these calls beginning at 8.30 and finally at 4.35, I think, or 4.45, the 5.07 was a different one, I'll come to that, um, which uh, he was refining it and then working out the whole final part of the speech, uh, which I thought really elevated it substantially uh, about the things that were needed for the future for the nation. So it was not just a resignation, it was also kind of a, a path for the future for those who would follow. And so I think he was able to leave on a somewhat higher note there. Uh, then the 507 call, uh, I had left the, I'll back up here. I had stayed at the office until about 1 p.m., about 1 a.m. Midnight, I got a call from Jerry Warren, who was the deputy press secretary. and was actually the one handling the press. Ron Ziegler had been doing the Alderman Ehrlichman jobs. And uh, Jerry very carefully told me that uh, queries from some of the press people, they saw the lights on in my office and they were asking whether that meta resignation speech was being prepared. Uh, I knew Jerry well. Uh, I was very, I replied very carefully. I said, and he asked, what did you, what did you tell him? I replied, you can tell them you don't know. Jerry knew exactly what I was doing. Uh, I was warning him not to deny it but not giving him actual knowledge so he could actually say that he did not know. Uh, and he was grateful for that later on. But then um, several more ca uh, calls during the, from uh, especially in the 3.15, 3.45 and so forth, that part of the early morning hours, by the time I was home, phoning me, waking me up each time. Um, working out the, really this, this forward-looking part of it, and which made it a much better speech. And then um, at 5.07, another call from him, a.m., saying, uh, just uh, put it, have it on my desk at 8.30 the next morning, and don't run it by Haig or Henry or anybody, just you, I want this to be my speech, just you and me. And uh, so I did that. Then we did more editing uh, during the day on Thursday. Uh, I was worried about his condition, but he was holding up very well, and he went on the air at 9 o'clock p.m., and delivered the speech, which I actually think was a very good one by the time we finished, but it was the, the better parts of it really were fleshed out during those, during the night, Wednesday night calls uh, from him to me. On the draft, on the other drafts, you can see where President Nixon wrote those famous lines in longhand mm -hmm. about resigning was uh, contradicted the very yeah. words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you re recall how those found their way into the uh, Well, he, uh, this was kind of the way we always operated. He, uh, he would mark up drafts and write things in and so forth. And uh, uh, this was something he felt very deeply. It was, it, it, this was a very personal, this was a much more personal speech than most of his, of course. And, um, but 
writing with him on the few that were written was always a, very much a back and forth process. Uh, as I did it him, he did it me, I did it him, he did it me, and so forth. And this, it followed pretty much the regular routine on that, as, as it was shaped, and as, as he began thinking it through. And at one point he had asked Ron, to, Ron Ziegler to find a special Teddy Roosevelt quote that he wanted to use about the man in the arena, uh, covered with blood, blood and sweat and so forth, who actually gets the things done. We put that in, but I cut off the top and the bottom of it so it would uh, seem less self-serving, uh, or it wouldn't be kicking me, kicking, kicking the others. Uh, and uh, but just gradually working out and massaging it. Uh, Julie hadn't been there at dinner because she had to be out with uh, a celebration that David's parents were having. I got back into my room and there was a note on my pillow. You uh, ha you reprinted in your memoirs. I have a copy. If you would read it. <clears throat> she often wrote me notes and she'd leave them around said, Daddy, I love you. Whatever you do, I will support. I'm very proud of you. Please wait a week or even ten days before you make this decision. Go through the fire just a little bit longer. You are so strong. I love you. Signed, Julie. And then a P.S. Millions support you. Like her mother, she was a fighter. If anything would have changed my mind, believe me, that would have done it. But it was too late. Didn't your family, in fact, continue to argue uh, even the next day against oh, yes. the resignation? The following or day. Or at least against doing it so soon. Against doing it at all, as a matter of fact. Uh, they wanted me to delay, uh, to take the heat a little longer, but they felt that in any event it was the wrong thing to do, wrong for the country as well as for myself personally. Uh, David and... and uh, Eddie came in the next day. They were among the first visitors. It was a very busy day, the Wednesday, uh, before my last full day as president. And uh, uh, I mentioned to David the point that I'd made about the party, because I knew he was very interested in politics. And I said, you know, I've got to do this for the party because I'm a liability. And he said, uh, you don't owe the party a damn thing. He said, that's the way Grandpa th uh, thought. And that's the way you should think. He said, after all, you rescued the party from oblivion after 1964. You ran way ahead of them in 1972. You do what's best for you and what's best for the country. And uh, Eddie Cox had a, a little different approach. Uh, he made the point that uh, it was uh, vitally important uh, for me to continue in office uh, because of the foreign policy considerations. And then Eddie Cox... Uh, <laughs> came in right after him. Boy, these two boys, they're, they're going to be great advocates as, if they ever get before a jury. Uh, he said that uh, he that came back to the theme that he had uh, started at Camp David about those that were in the special prosecutor's office. He says, look, I know these people. I went to Harvard with some of them. I served with some of them in the New York attorney's office after I graduated from Harvard. He says, they're very smart. They're very tough. And they hate you. They hate you with a passion. If you resign, they're not going to let up on you. They will harass you and hound you for the rest of the days of your life. I didn't know what to say. I said, well, it's kind of like the Greek tragedy. I said, 
If it stops in the middle of the second act, the audience throws chairs onto the stage. And all you have to do is to recognize that whatever the outcome, you've got to see it through to the end. But I was very proud of the way they presented their case. A lot of people uh, feel strongly that uh, one of uh, the most serious uh, crimes of Watergate, in a way, was was a crime of the heart. And uh, it was that you let Julie go out and continue to defend you uh, after you must have known that, that, uh, that, that your case was indefensible. Uh, do you have a feeling about that? I was frankly not as aware of that as many people would think. Uh, I wasn't reading the news summaries at that time, and she never spoke to me about it. Frankly, if she had asked me whether she should go out, I would have told her not to do it. The, uh, this night, when the, when the decision was finally irrevocable and people accepted it, although they didn't like it in your family, uh, you had one last dinner, and uh, you asked the White House photographer to be there. Why did you... Uh, as such a private person as yourself, why did you, how could you ask a photographer to be present to intrude at this most intimate moment? It certainly sounds uncharacteristic, uh, but on the other hand, I should point out that uh, Ollie Atkins we considered a friend. Uh, he had been with us for many, many years. He had taken pictures of the youngsters for the Saturday Evening Post when they were only that high. We all called him Ollie, and he called the kids by their first name and so forth and so on. Uh, the second thing was that uh, I just had a feeling uh, that it was important that the event be recorded. Uh, as I said to Tricia and Julie and Mrs. Nixon, I said, after all, there will come a time years from now uh, when you will want to see what we went through. And so this is only for our private purposes. At least I thought it was private at that point. As you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing of that period was private, and we have uh, the photographs. Can you uh, describe well, that, some of this one of you with uh, Tricia in the Rose Garden? The way that came about was that I got over to the residence uh, after this rather long day, and, uh, which I had uh, seen not only Eddie and uh, David, but others as well, who came in to plead their case. I remember Rabbi Korf coming in. He's like an Old Testament prophet. Uh, he urged me to reconsider. Uh, he said that uh, it would be a sin against history to allow these jackals in the media and this cabal in the Congress drive you from office. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then another thing that really tore me right to my heartstrings was when Rose uh, came in. Uh, she incidentally was wearing a pink dress. She always wore her pink dress when she wanted to be defiant to those that were our critics. And she said she just got a telephone call from Colonel Guy, one of the POWs. I think he'd been a POW for five years. She said he was in tears virtually. And he says, please tell him not to resign. Tell him he didn't give up on us and we'll never give up on him. Pretty tough to listen to that and hang in to the other decision, but I had made it, and that was that. But anyway, when I arrived in the room, I knew that it was pretty tense. Uh, I can always tell with Mrs. Nixon, I remembered at the time of the fund when we were in Portland, just before going down to make the broadcast, she had a terrible, severe pain in her neck. She gets a pain in her neck and very stiff when under tension. And this time I could see 
the throbbing. But when she saw me, she put on a great act. I guess it was an act. She got up and she came up and threw her arms around me and she said, we're all very proud of you, Daddy. Well, I didn't know quite what to say and Ollie, fortunately for me, for my emotions, Stephanie said, you know, I think it would be nice if we could get a picture of Mrs. Nixon and you in the Rose Garden. And she said, no, Holly, that's too much. I just can't do it. And Tricia said, I'll go with you, Daddy. So I went down with Tricia to the Rose Garden. Uh, it was incidentally quite appropriate that she go because we were able to think back to a happier time, 1971, three years before, when she and Eddie were married in the Rose Garden. We talked about that wedding. What a beautiful and wonderful occasion it was for all of us. And I must say, as I looked at Tricia, she was as beautiful, I think more so then and even now, than she was then. So then we went back upstairs. We had a bite to eat. Nobody was very hungry. I can't even remember what we had that night. It was good, but not sensational. Could have been sensational. We wouldn't have known. And then I felt that probably we ought to have a family picture uh, because our favorite White House picture had been of the whole family uh, for formal purposes, distributed during the campaign. And uh, so I... Which uh, was your favorite picture? The favorite picture was of the whole family, uh, where both couples and Mrs. Nixon and me, and either on either side. So uh, I said to... Uh, I told Ollie that I would... Uh, uh, that we would have the picture, and I put on a somewhat of a false front and bravado and tried to arrange it in my usual way. You stand here, you stand here, stand accordion-like so that you won't be cut out of the picture. And Ollie mercifully was quick because we were all uptight. Tears were brimming in virtually everybody's eyes. And then after he snapped that picture, Julie just couldn't hold in the tears any longer. She rushed over to me and threw her arms around me and said, I love you so much, Daddy. Well, by that time, uh, I couldn't say much either. One of the uh, one of the most memorable and and uh, subsequently controversial events of these days uh, was your uh, meeting with Henry Kissinger that night, which ended in your praying with him in the Lincoln bedroom. Do you remember that night? Oh, I remember it very well, and he remembers it very well too, because he's written about it, as I have. Uh, what happened is that he came over and uh, we had to discuss the sending of messages to people around the world we dealt with. The, I wanted to assure them all that President Ford was a strong man, that he had my total confidence and that he supported our foreign policy. Uh, and so we worked on some of those messages. And then we reminisced about some of the great events of the past. We reminisced, for example, about particularly the meeting in that very room uh, three years before when we got the message about the trip to China. And so I walked down the hall to the kitchen and the same bottle of Cavoisier that we had toasted from three years ago when we got that historic news, I found there. Nobody had drunk anything out of it since then. I brought it back with a couple of snifter glasses and we proposed the toast, not just to the past, but to the future. I must say, uh, we weren't quite as elated this time as we were. And Henry, in his rather gruff way, but uh, very sincere way, he said, if they continue to harass you, he said, I will resign and I will tell the reason why. And then 
I started to escort him out, and almost by emotion, right next to the Lincoln City Room is the Lincoln Bedroom, which incidentally used to be the cabinet room at one point, or the office. And uh, I said, Henry, uh, just wait a minute here. I said, on special occasions in times past, for example, before we went to China, before I had a major speech or a major press conference, before we went to Russia, uh, I would stop in this room and have a moment of silent prayer because I just sort of gathered strength just from being in this room where Lincoln had been. And I asked him to join me, and we knelt quietly in the Quaker fashion for a couple of seconds, got up, I escorted him out. A few minutes later, I felt a little embarrassed about it because I thought he might have been embarrassed. And I called on the phone. I said, Henry, you know, that was a very private matter, and I hope it didn't embarrass He says, not at all. He said, this isn't going to leak. <laughs> of course it did. I was not surprised. Were you hurt? Nope. I was beyond the point of being hurt then. Later, uh, after that uh, meeting, uh, Ron Ziegler came over to go over some of the uh, the details uh, of the yes. upcoming speech. And then, uh, when after Do you remember we, that? Uh, that was that was now way past midnight. Uh, and uh, as Ron was leaving, you know, he had been a loyal fellow and so forth and so on. And I sort of thought, you know, I've really never given him a tour of the upstairs. He'd seen it, of course, but I wanted him to see it through my eyes. So I had all the lights turned on in the Queen's bedroom, uh, in the uh, Lincoln bedroom, uh, and in the yellow oval room, and so forth and so on. And I walked through the rooms and showed them all to him and explained a little about the history and finally took him to the elevator. He seemed to be quite moved by it. And he just said simply, he said, you've had a great presidency, sir. On, your, uh, on the morning of your last day as president, you met with uh, Vice President Ford. What was that meeting like? Tough for him and tougher for me. Uh, we had worked together for many years. He came to the Congress only a year after I did. And uh, we had fought in many good battles. We'd won most and uh, lost some as well. Uh, I told him I thought the country would be in good hands. I told him that it was very important, I felt, for him to keep, him, keep Henry Kissinger. He agreed. He said he thought we had a fine cabinet. Uh, and then uh, as uh, we were leaving, I said, I'm going to tell you something. I said, I remember so well uh, the last, uh, uh, one of the last conversations I had with uh, uh, President Eisenhower. As a matter of fact, the last conversation I had with him before I was inaugurated. Uh, he called me on the phone. He said he wanted to wish me well. And then he went on to say, and his voice broke a bit when he said it, he said, you know, I have only one regret on this great day. This is the last time I could ever call you Dick, Mr. President. And I said, Jerry, this is the last time I'll call you Jerry, Mr. President. Brought a tear, too, to his eyes. I think to mine, too. We shook hands. He left. Later uh, in the day, uh, General Haig and uh, Ron Ziegler came in and uh, 
had brought word of a meeting with uh, the special prosecutor, Jaworski, in which he had said that uh, he thought you were making the right decision to resign, but that, that uh, there would be no deals. How did you respond to that? I don't think it was quite that there would be no deals. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was put in a way that he was implying that uh, he would try to do what he could to see to it that uh, there was no further uh, prosecution or harassment and so forth. And based on the previous record, I didn't have much hope that he would accomplish anything. But what irritated me about it was that he th apparently had coupled the two, that I was resigning so that he would la uh, lay off of me. I wasn't doing it for that. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I sort of, when I, uncharacteristically in that period in which I was trying to control emotions, I sort of blew my stack a little. And I said, uh, you know, uh, suppose you go to prison. I said, after all, some of the greatest work, uh, books have been written in prison. Look at Gandhi. Look at Lenin. I don't think either Lenin or Gandhi would appreciate it being coupled like that, but I did at that moment. Then afterwards, I uh, said to Ron Ziegler, I said, Ron, I was beginning to be rather introspective at the moment. I said, how can you really support a quitter? You say, yeah, I know I've got weaknesses, but I've never been a quitter. So let me tell you what happened to me in my first year as a freshman in college. I went out for track. I wasn't fast enough and didn't have the wind enough to do too well, but I ran the mile. And I remember I was in a race, and I was running in last place. No way I could win it. But I wasn't about to be last. And I remember that I sprinted the last 50 yards and finished next to last. I just wasn't about to be a quitter. Do you have any special recollections of uh, the two meetings you had, one with the congressional leadership uh, just before you went to make your resignation speech, one with the congressional leadership, and then one with your supporters from Congress in the cabinet room? Well, the congressional leadership came over to see me in the EOB, and it was a very, shall I say, cool meeting, uh, understandably so. I explained to them what I had intended to do. Uh, I expressed my appreciation for their understanding for working with me. It was very brief uh, because these were not particularly people that were I was very close to. Uh, I remember the most understanding one uh, seemed to be the two. One was Carl Albert. When he came in, he says, look, I hope you don't think that I was responsible for this. As you know, it was Kip O'Neill, who was not at this meeting, who had been the lead horse and leading the charge for impeachment. And uh, Jim Eastland was the other. He didn't say much, but you could just see the profound sympathy in the man. Who were the unsympathetic ones? I wouldn't say they were unsympathetic. I think, as a matter of fact, let me put it directly, it's hard for me, but it was hard for them, too. Uh, for Hugh Scott, that I'd known for many years, and Johnny Rhodes, that I'd known for many years. Mike Mansfield, I remember so well, I said, well, Mike, I'll miss our breakfast. And uh, he was puffing on his pipe. He just nodded. But as they're looking back on it, I think what happened was that they, they felt a little embarrassed about even being there, embarrassed because it was such a difficult time. And so I closed the meeting mercifully as fast as I could and then went over to the meeting with my supporters. Do you remember that? The meeting with supporters <clears throat> was uh, in the cabinet room. The cabinet room normally seats about 20, and you can put another 10 uh, around if you can. This time they crowded 55 into it. Uh, they had to pull my chair out from the table in order to let me sit down, in order to get everybody around it. Uh, it was the most emotional meeting 
I guess, that we had, even more emotional than the ones with the family, because with the family, uh, uh, we had the uh, understanding and so forth, uh, a quiet understanding. It, uh, we didn't let our emotions get away. But you could just feel the emotion rising and rising. First, the room was hot because so many people were in it. I talked about what we had been through going back over 25, 30 years, the campaigns we'd been through. There were Democrats and Republicans there. I expressed appreciation particularly for their support during the tough days in Vietnam, the support of my China initiative, the support on other tough issues. I don't think they were paying much attention to what I said. Uh, they just felt the tension in the room. I looked across the table and directly across from me, Les Aarons, uh, the whip and the Republican side, my friend for 25 years, he started to cry and he put his head down on his arms and just sobbed. And I just can't stand seeing somebody else cry. So I just sort of abruptly quit talking. I choked up. I said, I just hope I haven't let you down. Of course, I knew I had. And uh, somebody pulled the chair back and I left the room. Well, I went into the little room away from the Oval Office. The broadcast was to be there for the speech. And I had to speak in 15 minutes. And Al Haig came in, he very concerned, because wondered if I'd get up for it. I apologized to him. I said, Al, I said, that's the first time I've shown any emotion, as you know. He said, but I just can't stand seeing other people cry. He said, Mr. President, every man in that room was deeply moved. I don't know how I got myself together, but I did and went out and read the speech. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now. <laughs>